0: Hi, I'm Amanda and I'm Kim. And this is the department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands and products. <laughs>
1: Thanks for joining us here at The Department for Episode 32. This week we're going to be looking at one of the biggest trend drivers of the aughts. Uh, No, it's not uh, a celebrity. It's the
0: magazines. (laughs) I mean, Kim, it seems – you know, we talk about the aughts like it was 100 years ago. But sometimes it feels like it because magazines were like how you really saw the most interesting fashion in the early Mm -hmm. aughts. Like the internet – wasn't where it is now. And I spent a lot of money on magazines. Like, it yeah. was an important part of my life. At my job, I had a magazine allowance because, you know, mm-hmm. I needed to be up on the trends.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would go to the the library and read the magazines. I'm actually about to ask you a little bit about your magazine consumption habits. Okay. So before we get into that, okay, um, you know, I just want to make sure that everybody knows that they are welcome to Either email us a voice memo or call into our hotline at 717-925-7417 and you know, leave us any trend tips or nostalgic memories, um, you know, about things that happened in the aughts or things that are happening right now as well. You know, there will there will be a point when we will stop talking about hipsters and get back into <laughs> current trends as well.
0: Someday, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, You can also find us on Instagram at underscore the underscore department. Uh, We have all kinds of amazing content there, images to kind of back up what we're talking about here. And I feel like we have a whole community developing there at the Instagram. You can also – so I've been – you know, I'm the one who like uploads the episodes after I edit them. And I have been – rather than pasting our extensive show notes into our like – hosting platform, I'm now telling you just go to the department.world. It seemed weird to me that you would read all these notes but not see the images that go with them. So I was like, you know what? Just go to the website. Go read a very long essay about what we talk (laughs) about and get to look at the pictures.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's (laughs) it's basically the notes that we kind of go off of Mm -hmm. as we're talking. And I just I just paste them into the website directly instead of like editing them down just because we, we, we do so much work on it. It just, you know, it might as well just yeah. exist exactly.
0: in a written form. Exactly. And I was like pasting them all into the show notes, but without the pictures. And I was like, this is stupid. Like <laughs> You need to have it all at once. So just yeah. go to the department.world. You'll get to see everything we're talking about today, all kinds of neat images and whatnot.
1: And if you're enjoying the show, it always helps if you leave us a star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, so, you know, I think that we've gotten a couple of new ones lately, which is awesome to see. Uh, and also, you know, make sure to follow us on whatever podcast streaming service you uh, you, you use so that you can get the latest drops. Anyway, um, getting into the magazine. So, you know, magazines were, as Amanda was kind of saying, it was like a gateway to cool, and it was a gateway beyond the suburbs. At least for myself, um, you know, I was always personally fascinated with trends, um, style, and I was constantly looking to consume new knowledge and learn about new brands and music, style, taste, uh, websites from brands. I was just like, I wanted to know. Anything and everything, and like it wasn't like you. It wasn't like it is now, where you could just basically go onto the internet and just get a deluge <laughs> that no. was just just breaking you. It was like, like the there was so little out there for us for us to consume that was even interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, even you know, I look at like a website from two thousand five or something. There's this website you can use called the Wayback Machine, and it will pull up stuff from that era. And let me tell you, websites of that era were bad. Now I mm-hmm. understand why we were still so attached to magazines. Yeah. Um, you know, pre-internet
1: era, like I guess the 90s, you know, they were really like this precious periodicals that just like made your day <laughs> when they appealed in your mailbox. I remember coming home from school uh, and seeing yes. the newest whatever magazine. It was just like, oh my God, well, I know what I'm going to do tonight, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or mm-hmm. this weekend or whatever. And totally. um, You know, I found that as everything went digital, I had less and less time for these periodicals and I would find myself hoarding them. I didn't really realize I was doing it. It just started happening. Uh Um, And, you know, like one of these days I'm going to get to reading these, you know, because there's so much content and really cool information in a lot of these magazines. And There was back in the aughts. And I remember my mother came to Brooklyn once and she was just like... (laughs) Why do you have all these stacks of magazines everywhere? <laughs> oh my
0: god, I, I I know this too well. <laughs> yeah,
1: cuz you you like it got to this point where you started getting those free subscriptions. You would like trade in your miles mm-hmm.
0: for magazines.
1: And so it's just like, mm-hmm. "Oh my god, like and magazines were a precious commodity. This was like just this amazing ability to get all the magazines you basically could ever want, constantly coming in. Mm-hmm. It, but it was like overwhelming. <laughs>
0: It was. I, it wasn't. And, well, the deals would get so crazy. I mean, uh-huh. I look back now and I realize that they were, like, desperate for us to please, for the love of God, subscribe to their magazines. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like, oh, I already subscribed to this one. I'd get an offer in the mail, like, get this magazine mm-hmm. for just $2 for a whole year. Yeah. And you'd be like, well, okay. And suddenly you're, like, about to be caught in a cave-in of stacked magazines. Yes.
1: <laughs> and you just – you like, we were running out of time because we were transitioning yeah. to a digital world. And there was, like, your time was now spent on the internet, you know, you didn't have the reading time anymore. So like literally I didn't even notice there was an issue because these magazines were so precious, you know, that (laughs) (laughs) I finally just, I finally woke up and noticed it. And now there's, this is a no magazine household because I know I won't read it. (laughs) Like I know I just
0: can't get through them. I mean, I've tried, you know yeah no i to- i totally i totally understand i can't remember the last time i actually like went out bought a magazine and sat down and looked at it
1: yeah i you was know? i was somehow subscribed to bon appetit magazine i mm. i was trying to figure the source out it might have been my dad i'm not really sure i asked him he's like sometimes i have to i check a box and 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 i put your name in there and i'm like what <laughs> what what is this? Dad. What is this free? He's like I get a I get a free subscription that you get to give it so some I haven't gotten them in a while. Now I'm kind of like I'm in a pandemic. Like
0: come on, where's this free? It's free <laughs> Bon Appétit magazine. Yeah, that sounds pretty good right about now actually. Yeah. But, you know what? About a year or two ago, I started getting free issues of uh like Food Network magazine and First, I was really excited about it, but Kim, I just started like not even opening them. Yes. And we moved into this house, I found them all still in their like plastic bags. Yes. I brought them, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm it. No, like- we can't. <laughs> <laughs> you, you- yeah, of course.
1: Do you know how many magazines I've moved around? <laughs> around oh with my me? gosh.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. Wait. Uh, they're- Wait. And they're
1: sealed. And you're just like, one of these days, I'm going to be reading of- these? Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the thing is, like, I don't buy magazines very often anymore, right? Except for maybe if I'm going to go on an airplane. And well, I haven't done that in quite a while, yeah. obviously. And I would sometimes go into the airport and, you know, be like, I'm just going to grab one magazine to read on the flight because in case I get bored with my book or whatever. And I'd be like, wait this is $10. Like magazines got really, really expensive too, where you're like, I don't know if I want to spend $10 for this when I could get a full on book for like 15, you know, it just, it just doesn't make sense. I understand that the industry is really struggling to survive. So like they got to do what they got to do, but it does make me sad because magazines for me as a teenager were my window to the outside world. I mean, I lived in a very small town where I was definitely super weird you know this is like i mean i grew up in a town of like rednecks you know and you this was in um rural pennsylvania
1: rural rural pennsylvania yes
0: and uh when i was a teenager we moved to harrisburg which is the state capital and felt like the big city it was and it is not a big city (laughs) But uh, they had... It was bigger than rural Pennsylvania. That's right. That's right. And they had a bus system and there was this magazine shop downtown. I could take two buses to get there. I got the magazine
1: stores. Oh, (gasps) see, exactly. And I would Mm -hmm. go...
0: Because my mom was basically like, yeah, do whatever you want. I don't care. And so I would get, you know, pay for my 75 cent bus ticket, go downtown and buy... 20 30 dollars worth of magazines, mm-hmm. and they have them from like all over the world. Yes, all kinds of really cool, yes. like smaller art magazines from like San Francisco and New York yeah. and stuff like that. And you collected them, I did. I did. Uh-huh. I my bedroom walls were like wallpapered with things I had cut out of mm-hmm. magazines. You know, I and had notebooks, felt- I would like cut out the inspiration <laughs> and I put I paste
1: them into these notebooks for like design and style and stuff.
0: And like I'm I'm nostalgic for it, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I would love to sit down and read a magazine right now actually because it's been so long and even I was one of those people who's like I'll never switch from books to a Kindle and I've been gradually doing that too where I'm like it's so much easier, mm-hmm. it's like less stuff, right? Yeah. But it it's not the same, you know, as like sitting with something paper in your hands. And you can read a book or a magazine in a bathtub or on a beach, but you don't want to take your Kindle there, I hope. Wait, you wouldn't take a Kindle to the beach? No, I'd be too nervous. Really? What if it, like, overheated or something? You know how sometimes your phone overheats at the beach? <laughs> I don't know. I have taken it to the beach, and it's fantastic.
1: And, you know, mm. now – okay, so one of the problems with, like, books is that, it, it like, it, it's so bright – you know what I mean? True. Yes. And now they have these like weird, it's like this weird light balancing trick. So you can read it in bright lights or dark and you can read it anywhere, Hmm. including the beach. And it's such a pleasant experience.
0: Wow. Okay. Little little tip here for you. I'm like, beach, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm like, (laughs) one of these days, when
1: you come and visit me,
0: Yes. Someday. It's not that far away, I'm sure. What did you subscribe to in your formative years? Oh my gosh. It's like, what didn't I? Because I feel like they practically, like you said, they gave magazines away. But like in the 90s. Let's say the 90s. Okay, well, every teenager magazine, for yes. sure. So I had like 17. I think I stopped subscribing to teen by the time I hit high school because yeah. it felt like... It was really the young. Name, it's really for tweens, yeah. was uh, YM, YM. Yes, yeah. YM. Um... I subscribed to Mademoiselle. Mm-hmm. I uh, got Rolling Stone and Spin and Alternative Press, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure there was more. I mean, the number of magazines coming into mm-hmm. our house, and then I would go like downtown and buy even more. Like it, it was insane for a while. Even. I mean, I know this isn't a magazine, but this is also another publication that doesn't exist before anymore. My stepfather got me a subscription to The Village Voice. So I would have oh, yes. a copy of that coming to my house every week too. I mean, I just... Wait, Amanda, did you subscribe to Cat Fancy? <laughs> no, although... <laughs>
1: no, but you wanted to, no, right?
0: No, no. When I was a kid, <laughs> they at the grocery store, they had this wall where you could like get all these coupons and stuff and send away for things. And my brother and I went on a binge where suddenly like one month we were getting like cat fancy yes. bird fancy dog fancy, like all these weird magazines and they kind of sucked. <laughs>
1: okay.
0: Right. And you you knew, you
1: knew what a good magazine was and you're like, this is crap. Yeah, it
0: was, it, I mean, I can't, you know, I think they've tried to like rebrand cat fancy because I remember Sherry was receiving copies of this cat magazine that no one would take credit <laughs> for sending her. And it was called like, Catster or something like that, and like <laughs> the reality is, like no one wants to read a magazine about cats. There's yeah. so much, <laughs> even cat ladies. There's So much to talk about, you know. Like, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I I had a subscription to Zoo Books, oh, and I loved yeah. it. Yeah, no,
0: though that was different. It was though. my favorite. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, we had a subscription to Highlights when I was a kid. I would get so yes, that game. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. magazines were just like an important part of our lives growing up. My mom got tons of magazines mm-hmm. too. She, you know, she got like soap opera digest and we got TV guide and, you know, like people. And I mean, there were just so many magazines.
1: I mean, and even not even magazines, but like the catalogs uh, that would come in, I, I would pour through those me too. too. I mean, we had a lot less to do, We did, but like the J <laughs> the J crew catalog would come or the Delia's catalog would come and you just like you would just consume a couple it hours You'd, you know see, yeah i yeah. know
0: i know it's like the idea of having that kind of free time now is like wild to <laughs> no. me. but uh because we still you know like weird magazines come to our house for our, like previous residents and a lot of them were like really weird for like amish people <laughs> and like okay like yeah. one of them we finally stopped getting but it's like it's basically a newsletter that comes out every week but it's like 30 pages long and it's just about like who went to church last week and who didn't basically and then some like oh ads God. and we someone who lived here at some point was a dog groomer so we get weird grooming mm-hmm magazines. And also someone who lived here was really into essential oils because we get tons of newsletters and catalogs and you name it about the healing powers of essential oils. So there's lots of weird stuff that comes here still, uh, but I don't have time to read it.
1: Maybe you start that that no magazine household because you'll just turn into a crazy hoarder that's just moving like literally hundreds of hundreds of pounds of magazines around. Not even magazines that you even really like. It's like Health magazine. But you're like, yeah. Do you even have the, the secret a secret recipe or a trick that I'm missing out? <laughs>
0: Well, and I think I was telling you how Justin and I went to a Barnes & Noble recently, which was like, this was the first time I'd done something Mm -hmm. like that in a really long time. And we were specifically looking for some cocktail book that he wanted. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go look at the magazines. I used to love this. I used to love going to Barnes & Noble or Borders or whatever and looking at magazines for like hours, right? And Kim, the magazines were just terrible. They were like so niche. Yeah. They were like – it would be like a magazine for people who both love guns and crossword puzzles or something. Like it was <laughs> so bizarre. I mean there were still tons and tons and tons of bridal magazines, mm-hmm. tons of magazines about like lifting weights and working out. Okay, um, Lots of weird like craft and home decor magazines but like not cool. Like, you know what sh- I mean? Like ship yeah, exact. Oh my god, there's so much of that. Yeah, yeah. I think those people even have a magazine. Actually, they, they do. Uh, yeah, Graphlands was
1: actually in the inaugural issue. We we just sold so many of this bag that that that. Um, Oh, what's her name? Uh,
0: Joanna. Joanna. I think. Yeah,
1: jo- Joanna. Yeah. She just featured one of these bags and was just like, "This is my favorite bag." And all of a sudden, like, we had no idea what was happening, but these bags were just flying off the shelves, <laughs> you know. And it, and it, it was because Joanna loved this bag, and it, she has so much. Wow. She's basically has as much pull as like Oprah.
0: Oh, my God. That was what I was just going to say. I have been saying forever that the one magazine that I would still subscribe to would be Martha Stewart because actually the recipes are really good. But then it's like, oh, wait, I could just go Google that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Now you just Google stuff. And then it's like not a thing that I have to like file away or go recycle or it's just like magazines become a burden. And I never thought that I would be that person who was like over magazines, but it happened very slowly. It did. Yeah. (laughs) It did. Um, So how do you digest and learn about trends these days? Well, I mean, I don't look at like fashion blogs. I'll tell you that. Like they're so boring. I talked about that in the last episode. For me, it's really about looking at social media, looking at Instagram, looking at TikTok. Um, I actually even just like chill out on Depop because I think the people selling there are really at the forefront of trends and there's it's like a lot more creatively driven. Mm-hmm. So you can also see what's coming there. But, you know, I will say like based on my experience working in the industry is that the for the most part, most of the retailers and brands out there aren't operating with that mindset. And so they're using the subscription trend services and like yeah. WGSN. And so... They're seeing like the runway down kinds of trends instead of like what's coming up from real life, I guess. I don't know how you would call it, but there is definitely a major divide there.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think really it's basically being on the ground floor and being on like Instagram or Depop, like you're saying, mm-hmm. and just all of a sudden recognizing that there's something, you're seeing something. And, and it's not coming from a specific you know, voice that has, you know, a million followers or a celebrity. It's just, it's just, it's just in the air. There's a scent in the air of a trend. Oh,
0: for sure. Because I would also say like, I know that there was a time that ostensibly like influencers were really driving the trends. They were at the forefront of trends, but that's definitely shifted to in the same way it did for the fashion blogs where, they're actually posting content. They're being post. They're being paid yeah. to post. So it's no longer trend focused. It's like where the money comes yes. from, right? It's not authentic. Yeah, it's not authentic. And I would say the same thing about like you know refinery, for example. Uh, even the man repeller had gotten there, and it it just it didn't feel fresh anymore. It felt like the same ideal was being recycled to me. And then I would like mm-hmm. go look at what people were listing in Depop and how they were dressing, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, like yeah. I haven't seen a single big influencer like post a Y2K mm-hmm. look and like that is what's going on right now, you know? Yeah.
1: I mean, I'll I will definitely follow some of like the the really big Gen Z influencers. I'll I'll definitely follow them and see what they're doing because those people still have huge push and pull. They do, yeah. Within. Yeah. But I think like millennial influencers are super gross. <sighs> And just I, I would prefer a Gen Z in, influencer
0: um, over a millennial in, influencer any day. Oh my god, yeah, like like oh like Danielle Bernstein. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> yes, like she is so uncool. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Most
1: of most of them are super yeah, uncool. Like yeah, the, Like, uh, did you were the one that told me to watch the influencer
0: HBO show, right? Oh yeah, fake famous. Oh my god, I've been. Oh my god, like, it was so.
1: Thinking about it
0: nonstop since then, and that was really interesting to me because you're like, oh right, yeah, because like influencers for the most part aren't cool. Like you start to see that, yeah,
1: they're not cool. They're just it's all made up. It is hilarious to see them in the backyard, in like in like a kiddie pool, pretending to be at a spa. I that's just so or the
0: toilet seat as the window on airplane. Oh the toilet!
1: Oh my god, that's amazing. If
0: you're listening to this and you haven't watched it, it's on HBO Max. It's called fake famous, you've probably heard about it already. But like, for me, especially as someone who's trying to like, build like a variety of different like media to reach people with, it was super Mm -hmm. fascinating and actually made me feel like so much better about what's going on in my life. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's get into it a little bit. So the 90s and into the 2000s were the golden years of magazine publishing. According to a report in 2001 from first Monday, about 5,200 consumer magazines were distributed nationally in 1998. Additionally, there were uh, more new magazine launches than ever before, and a total of 1,076 new consumer magazines came out in
0: 1998
1: alone. Which is the highest ever recorded.
0: But I do feel like that was the peak time of going to like a big bookstore, you know, whether it was like Borders or Barnes & Noble at Powell's in Portland. And there were aisles and aisles and aisles of magazines.
1: And this is very interesting to what you were actually just talking about, the nicheness. So new media was on the precipice of changing everything. But the nicheification of consumer demand was trending with that article, that same one I was just talking about from First Monday, going on to say, and I quote, readership may have declined for the top 50 magazines, which they were talking about how it was showing down, but the audience has simply shifted to the incredible number of hot new magazines that started. The real trend is that magazines are being created for much more targeted segments, like bodybuilders, who also like crosswords. (laughs) (laughs) Case in point, subcultures thrived and grew with magazine culture, which is obviously extremely niche. In some arguments, subcultures and countercultures couldn't exist without these publications. Niche magazines in the 90s and the aughts were actually a part of that subculture if they were done authentically. Mainstream nonsense was just not applicable here, and nor were the constraints of appealing to the demands of advertisers to fund the mag at the sake of compromising true and pure content. Magazines were obvious trendsetters back in the day, and oftentimes windows into culture and music unattainable by the suburban diehards, as we mentioned before, you know, Amanda and I, the young and Mm -hmm. the hip consumed magazines in droves, and we were... Uh, we only had what we what could actually be produced. Um, they became pract- practically biblical and getting your monthly issue was just an event into itself. Mm-hmm. Zine culture was the closest you could oftentimes get to subcultures until a few brave magazines came along to educate and develop our cultural pursuits in the era when the internet was so infantile or just non-existent. And pre-internet age, a lot of subculture hadn't, been totally corrupted by the marketing and commercial machine quite <laughs> it's yet. True.
0: It's true. I guess it, it was such an innocent time. We had no idea. Yeah, we didn't know. I feel like we
1: would have recognized it. I mean, of course, there were some, and we did notice that there was some corruption. MTV and that mm-hmm. whole Woodstock debacle we talked about.
0: <sighs> but still, I mean, it was like, that was the the sort of like turning point where suddenly brands and media really got smart about like marketing to our emotions. And this was like a thing, like if you went to any sort of like training seminar for marketing or branding or any trend forecasting thing in the late nineties or early aughts, this was a thing that people would talk about. Like now we understand Mm. you need to make an emotional connection Mm. with your customer. And like, wow, okay, so this has been happening for 20 years now. I think it, for a middle part of that, we didn't realize what was going on. I, I We fell no. for it. We no. fell for it. Everyone was just like, sh- just
1: shooting blanks in the dark, essentially. And <laughs> and now like, like, because everything was so niche, you could then connect emotionally with that niche group. This mm-hmm. was like the first time really that they were able to do that too. And to actually have, um, like an, a, an an actual specific audience to target to. It's not just like an ad that's run on a TV program for you know you know like Pepsi just trying to appeal to literally every single person in the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. This is an
1: ad trying to appeal to um uh you know fifteen to seventeen year old girls from specific you know like they could they could actually like narrow it down and really understand the mindset. It's like Mind yeah. Hunter, but for like teenagers.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Looking <laughs> into the minds of the teenagers, which I personally find exceptionally fascinating. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Let's see where where was I? Okay. Um, the complete pilfering of a counterculture took a few years, uh, particularly of the hipster existence, uh, when the the muddy, the muddying of the waters really started. So mm-hmm. one trailblazer was the Face magazine. Um, And they Mm. really paved the way for a lot of these subculture magazines to flourish. They basically showed the world that immersion into youth culture could be successful, not just talking about them from like an outsider, you know, they perspective, as opposed to an us or we format. The Face launched in 1980. Can you believe that? Wow. I thought it was like maybe the 90s, 1980, and they championed British youth underground lifestyles, which did have quite a bit of a variation <laughs> and then like a few similarities from American versions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the differentiators also that the face held from mainstream glossies was that they invoked that's this style of graphic design that was actually considered groundbreaking for a larger publication. You know, I think it probably took a lot of nods from zine culture, um, but it was all about forward and modern design that you would just never see in any of the other magazines.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it
1: looked amazing. Amazing. And I mean, the, the people that they also included were just incredible. And of course, you know, when you're talking about the face, the face, we didn't really because you know obviously we're based in you know i was in like madison wisconsin like i didn't really know half the people they were talking about or the subcultures you know like, oh, there was definitely yeah. <laughs> like having that ocean and like even the lack of internet you know there was a it, it, we really needed something in america to to, yeah. have, <laughs> yeah. to support our subcultures but the face was like it was a it was a really cool one to kind of appeal to the The face of circulation rate started to diminish in the 90s, congruent with the slowly falling in inter, interest in subcultures in the UK, which also kind of mirrored the same issues with nylon and other magazines later in America. Um, mm-hmm. So the 90s ushered in some other great trendsetting magazines that we were talking about. Dazed was in 1991. There's the Fader, Wallpaper, just tons of different magazines. And in America, we had mags for fashion. Um, as either geared towards teens and women's and of course in fashion speak that would have been junior or missy
0: (laughs) oh and
1: and they weren't very niche either it was really like basically going into department store um the teens were the ym and sassy 17 ms Uh, i think i subscribed to a lot of them i think some of my sisters also subscribed to some of them we would just swap um but it was decidedly Mm -hmm. for you know young girls and they stayed super
0: innocent until Jane. The brands, too, would be, like... Like, there was a very clear divide in terms of the brands of clothing that you would see in YM and Sassy and Seventeen versus what you might see in, like, Glamour or Vogue mm-hmm. or any of the, like, grown-up magazines. Like, a very, very strong divide. And also, like, brands of cosmetics and stuff. Like, all of that. Like, they definitely had drawn some line in the sand that was like, this is what teenage girls will be yeah. shown. This is what grown women will be shown. And there will be no overlap whatsoever. Exactly.
1: And then and then they would have like those – all those like writing comments and it, it would just be like this – like like the most lost girls would write in to the
0: magazine <laughs> and they'd be like, I just got my period and I'm really embarrassed or something, you know? They all got into this like horror story thing where you would write in letters of terrible things that had happened to you. Like I went to a – all school pool party, and I wore a maxi pad under my bikini yes. and the maxi pad fell out, and you're just like, Oh my god, how oh my- did this happen? Like, where is your mother? I- <laughs>
1: like, why why are you relying on a teen magazine to but but then again, you couldn't privately, secretly type into a computer something that you were even embarrassed to ask, you know, even your mother. <laughs> Nowadays you can, you know. <laughs> Back then, it was just like, like it was just just throwing children out into the wild. Um, So I guess the magazines were there for a slight amount of (laughs) support.
0: Not to wear a maxi pad in a pool. (laughs) To be fair, it's not like my mom ever told me that. So you know, maybe I learned that from the magazine. Maybe it was good. That's true.
1: (laughs) No, because you were far too embarrassed to talk to your your mother about lots of things. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, particularly
1: you. Well, Amanda's about to get into a bunch of other cultures, but just, uh, just I wanted to make sure to mention Jane magazine, which was a precursor to Jezebel, essentially. You know, mm-hmm. Jane came along in 1997 and basically just blew our joint alternative minds. Dude, and,
0: I mean, yeah. what happened to it? It was so good. So good. Um, I, don't, <laughs> I never understood what happened there because it seemed wildly successful.
1: I don't know. I didn't really get into the whole backstory. I know that the uh Jane, the the uh, the woman who Jane founded Ratt, it, yeah. Yeah, Jane Pratt yeah. has a little bit some some people are the lover or the hater. And I'm wondering if she, that. she got into some itch some troubles or so, something. I'm not I'm not I, exactly yeah. sure. But she
0: she came from Sassy, right? Yes. And as far as I can tell, what happened with Sassy, and this is like just ha- having not read about anything about this in a while, was that Sassy was really problematic for the parent publisher because they were constant, like, we didn't know this as teenage girls, right? There were constant, like, advertiser boycotts and other issues Aww. related to some of the content. Like they Because they would, God forbid, mention abortion or masturbation. It was like, when I think back of what was in Sassy, it's, like, so tame, right? But especially knowing now that, like, Girls in ninth grade can just go on the internet and be exposed to far worse, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, but so it was kind of a pain in the butt for the publishing company that owned them. So they sold them off and they sold them off to someone super cheesy. I want to say it was the same company that owned Teen Magazine. I think you're which right. Was cheesy. And so they gutted the entire stuff. And like, I remember you know, I subscribed to Sassy until the switch happened and it's not like it was really broadcast because, you know, we didn't have the internet. And one day Sassy showed up at my house and it looked really weird. Oh. It like had a totally different look and I started reading it and it was like garbage. <laughs> and like, I don't think,
1: Went I don't think it lasted. Trash.
0: Yeah. I don't think it lasted much longer. No, I know there was didn't. a lot of uproar. I mean, I can't imagine that happening now in like a Twitter era, like it would have been a gar a dumpster fire. Right. Um, but I do think that probably Jane ran into some similar issues, is my guess. Then they have Exo Jane, which is yes. like online. Exo Jane, yes. Yes, I knew someone yeah. that was an editor there. And I think that was another thing where it was bought by someone big yeah. who ruined it, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah.
1: you know, Jane was basically the the first of its kind kind of feminist forward mainstream mag talking about things that other glossies wouldn't even go near, like you said, like sex and subcultures and the 90s riot girl. And it developed mm-hmm. a huge cult following. But where I mean, it went and when it went, I'm not exactly sure. And of course, you know, I have um I pasted in here their premier magazine, which, of course, had our favorite. Person Drew Barrymore, Drew, Drew Barrymore, and and right on the front, it's like sex to write home about and hair, and it was just, it was different, mm-hmm. you know. It was just, it was a different conversation than that we were than what we, what we were having,
0: and it was really forward. I want to remind everyone that we talked a couple episodes ago about the interview. In Jane Magazine of Dove Charney. Yes. Where he, they, you know, the writer. Jane, I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm blanking on her name right now. Uh, Claudine Co. wrote about him masturbating in front of her numerous times and all of these other things. And like, I want you to try to imagine that in a women's magazine even now. Imagine that even in Cosmo. Like, no way. Because Cosmo is all like weird and coy. Like, here's a sex tip. I remember reading this once. I hope your dad's not listening. Where they were like, put a donut around your lover's penis <laughs> and like what who would Jonah? do that yeah do that yes I remember reading wait and- is that Cosmo or Jane Cosmo <laughs> like Jane. Jane. that was like how Cosmo would talk about like sex stuff and it was like ridiculous like just so silly but under the guise of it being serious and Jane would be like how about I interview this fucking pervert totally. who sells t-shirts you know what I mean yeah. like like, that was just, the approach was so different. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, I, R.I.B.J. and it was so good. I'm sure it was just advertiser nonsense. Also, by the time, when the internet started to catch on, mm-hmm. it got hard to be a magazine. That's what I've learned in my research for yeah. this episode. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you can't talk about the 90s and the aughts and their, like, the subculture Magazine industry without talking about zines. And zines, if you're unfamiliar with them, they (laughs) still exist. Uh, They were often produced by one person or a small group of people. We're talking extremely low budget DIY situation, often printed on a copy machine, you know, or just straight up printed out, stapled together, folded, that kind of thing, you know, like no binding rare are there any color photography DIY stuff yeah very DIY now zines it turns out I didn't even know this have been around in one form or another since the middle of the last century and they actually began as a sort of like community hub for members of various subcultures ranging from science fiction like, like that's where it really began is with science fiction uh, which then turned into like a huge empire of like start or i guess a huge network of star trek related zines yes. um oh, yeah. by the 70s it, punk was in on that and there were a lot of punk zines and in the 90s zines really caught fire and i will say i knew about zines because of sassy magazine Like they would talk about different, the bigger zines in Mm -hmm. Sassy here and there. And that's how I knew of their existence. As I mentioned in last week's episode about the DIY culture in the Pacific Northwest, zines were a major thing in Portland when I was living there in the aughts, but they had been for quite a while. There was an entire store devoted just to selling zines uh, called Reading Frenzy. And the IPRC, which is the Independent Publishing Resource Center, was a place, it's still, I don't know why I'm saying was, because it still exists, a place for artists and writers to work on and print their publications. You know, and zines were a way for artists and writers to get their work out there, especially if they didn't align with the ideas that the mainstream media were presenting. And as you can see, a lot of this content for women that was mainstream was like not very cool. You know, it still isn't garbage. Yeah. 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 With these rare exceptions like Jane, Mm -hmm. it was also a great way to share the stories of people who were generally ignored for being too weird, too political, too whatever. It's no surprise that the young third wave feminists of the nineties saw zines as a great tool for activism and education. Remember, this is like a pre-internet world. Yeah, the you, riot- didn't, you, didn't, you didn't have to
1: like, you didn't have to, to to get a bunch of advertisers to pay for a beautiful glossy no.
0: magazine and distri- distribution and, and staffing. Right, right. I mean, and I remember making a lot of zines in college and the thing that really always... Was the stressor was that Kinko's was really expensive. <laughs> Kinko's Incom- is so expensive. Kinko's is still so expensive. It's so stupid. Yeah. Well, the Riot Girl movement was essentially born in 1990 with the launch of a zine called Bikini Kill, which in issue two shared the Riot Girl manifesto. Oh, awesome. And that manif I know, really cool, right? This manifesto included, quote, Because we girls want to create mediums that speak to us. We are tired of boy band after boy band, boyzine after boyzine, boy punk after boy punk after boy. Because in every form of media, I see us slash myself slapped, decapitated, laughed at, trivialized, pushed, ignored, stereotyped, kicked, scorned, molested, silenced, invalidated, knifed, shot, choked, and killed. Because every time we pick up a pen or an instrument or get anything done, we are creating the revolution. We are the revolution. It's so poignant, especially when you know that at that point, every teenage girl in the United States was getting to look at, like, Teen Magazine and Seventeen and be afraid of accidentally wearing a maxi pad to a pool party. Like... exactly garbage that was just constantly being fed to you
1: on you know tv
0: exactly exactly and with the exception of sassy most of the media where you're exposed to was like don't forget that you need to be thin don't forget you need to deal with your zits you need to worry about smelling be afraid of your period wear the right clothes be popular go to homecoming have the best dress for prom you know it was like and it was all
1: about dating guys
0: all of it it was very heteronormative
1: But And not not only that, but it was like, you need a boyfriend. You have to have a boyfriend. It's really important that you have a boyfriend.
0: It was so boy crazy. But you know what? Mm -hmm. Then you graduate to the adult magazines and it's like, not like sexy magazines, but you know, like the magazines for grown women. And it would be like, (laughs) now you got to focus on getting engaged and getting married. Mm -hmm. You know, and having a kid, and like, what's your timeline? You got to get on this. So... Yeah. How do you know if he's the
1: right one? How do you get him to settle? How do you get him to say the,
0: to ask the question or whatever,
1: pop the question? Or
0: articles that were like, oh, you don't have a boyfriend? Here's how to go get one. You know, it was just being fed into this hopper that was going to lead you through this life of like total heteronormativity, sacrificing your own dreams and wants to like get married and have kids and have that life. And also buy a lot of shit along the way.
1: I mean, imagine if there was a bunch of a bunch of articles that we were reading when we were like 17, 18, 19, 20 about being strong, career-driven, you know, how to get ahead, you know? Imagine. Oh, imagine that.
0: I mean, that's why you and I and many, many other women fell for the girl boss hype because this is the first time we were being introduced to that. We were finally hearing stuff that felt like it was the right fit for us. Obviously, it was not completely what we wanted, but you know that's why it felt so groundbreaking. Yeah. That is why Girl Boss sold like a gazillion copies because exactly, no one had talked about that before, no.
1: and we all we everybody was desperate for it, and it it definitely held us back. Like,
0: definitely, definitely, it's getting uh, me riled up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Erica Reinstein and Mae Summer founded the Riot Girl Press to serve as a zine distribution network that would allow riot girls to quote express themselves and reach large audiences without having to rely on the mainstream press. So what we see is a the beginnings of a rejection of what the mainstream press is selling us, right? I read this amazing mental floss article to prepare for this episode. I didn't even know I was going to be talking about zines in this. And it's just how it went. Uh, There's this amazing mental floss article, like a lot of their stuff. It's very thorough and it's about the history of the zine. And according to this article, quote by 1993, so this is three years after the bikini kill zine hit the scene an estimated 40,000 zines were being published in North America alone. Many of them devoted to Riot Girl music and politics. And 40,000. I mean, that's amazing, you know, of like individual yeah. people or groups of friends putting this stuff together, taking it off to Kinko's, getting it copied yeah. and mailing it out. And these zines, they spread those ideas of Riot Girl and feminism and the music and art around it from its origins in Olympia, Washington to young people across the world. You cannot. Overstate how important this was for creating like a new generation of young feminists. Mm-hmm. There was a zine that focused solely on reviewing every zine out there, which <laughs> now that we know that there were 40,000, that's pretty wild. Um, and they would also include all the information for ordering because you would literally remember, this is a pre internet era, there's no Venmo, there's no PayPal. You would literally have to mail a check or a money order to an address, and then they would send the zine back to you. I mean, this was this was how it was yeah. back then. Um, this was called Fact Sheet 5. Each issue would literally contain thousands of reviews. So I would pick wow. this up. There was a record store, kind of, well, not, not near where I grew up, but actually close to where I live now. <laughs> strangely yeah. enough that sold it and so I would go get it every few months and I would just like page through it and highlight all of the different zines I wanted to mail away for this was that like that is
1: so cool is that so
0: cool this was like my personal bible for finding other zines like I said there would be a couple sentence review for everything and Whoever whoever this fact sheet five person is deserves a
1: reward.
0: I know. I mean, think of all the hard work. And I mean, it was a couple bucks, but like the amount of work they were putting into this. Um, So I would be constantly receiving this or that zine in the mail. This opened up my view of the world and really my place as a woman and what I wanted my life to be. My friends and I, both in high school and in college, were always making zines of our own. What kind of zines were you making? They were always about, like, feminism and music and clothes and drawing and just, like, all kinds of stuff Mm -hmm. that we were into. Like, I was trying to think of, like, what some of my favorite zines of that era were. Uh, One was called Roller Derby. It was by Lisa Carver. Um, She's still a writer. um, And... After roller derby kind of waned, she wrote a book called Dancing Queen that I love. It's like a memoir of her time growing up in New Hampshire, but it's also about how much she loves ABBA and disco and roller skating and getting highlights and all kinds of stuff. It's a really enjoyable read. Um, and I know she wrote, you brought the site up to me via text earlier this week. She wrote for a while for Nerve, and I believe she <laughs> wrote, was like their, one of their like sex columnists or something. Um, then Toby Vale of Bikini Kill had her own zine called Jigsaw that I remember being very cool. Miranda July and Joanna Faitman. Joanna Fateman actually went on to be in La Tigra with you know uh-huh. a bunch of people from Bikini Kill. Um, they had a, a zine called Snarla. I mean, there were there were tons of other ones, but they all they were all just like so cool. For sure. So cool. So cool. Anyway, I went down the zine rabbit hole because what I actually wanted to learn about were two major early aughts feminist hipster magazines that grew out of this golden era of zines that was Bust in 1993 and then Bitch in 1996. There was also Venus, which came up in 1995 and I want to say ended around 2010 and another one called a Hip Mama that came out in 1997, which was like... The first, and I would say only, Hipster Magazine for moms. It was oh really gosh, cool. I've
1: never even heard of that one. Yeah. That is really cool. They actually,
0: Hip Mama had a really amazing forum in the early aughts of like, you know, moms who were hipsters and were like all over the country and like, you know, trying to figure out like this was the Bush era. Not a good time to be a single mom. <laughs> there were a lot of single moms on there, people who were in complicated relationships, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. And it was a major resource for me to like get advice and stuff. Um Bust, I would say is the biggest one, right? And have you ever, have you ever read Bust? Have you ever been into it? Of course. Okay. I loved Bust. So I thought Bust came out in like 2000 or 1999 or something, maybe a little bit earlier. Cause I remember buying it, at another zine store in Chicago and thinking it was really cool, but I definitely didn't know it went all the way back to 1993 for sure. No idea. It was founded in New York city by Debbie Stoller, Lori Hensel and Marcel Karp. The three were actually working at Nickelodeon together when this happened. I know. Uh, our, our intention, Stoller said, was to start a magazine that would be a real alternative to Vogue, Cosmo, Mademoiselle, and Glamour, something that was as fierce and as funny and as pro-female as the women we knew. If Playboy is or was entertainment for men, then this would be like entertainment for feminists to yeah. present pop culture from a feminist perspective and give feminism some better PR. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically what they did is they reached out to all their different cool friends and were like, hey, will you write some, like, personal essays for us? You know, just write about your lives. It'll be really cool. They were also aware that the standard women's magazines just made women feel bad about themselves, which they continue to do even now, right? In 2019, Hensel told Please Don't Kill Me, quote, the whole thing about Bust was that it was a reaction to women's magazines, We looked at women's magazines and felt gross, which I totally agree with. Absolutely. They made us feel bad about ourselves. They are designed to do that. They are designed to say, you really need to buy this makeup or else you're shit. Or (laughs) I know, but it's true, right? You, You really need to buy these shoes because they will make you look sexy to guys. There you go with the whole like boy craziness of these magazines. We wanted to make a magazine that was the opposite of that, where girls could say, this is cool I'm interested in this music or this writer or this concept more than just fashion or beauty, which is what women's magazines are doing, which is true. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. like these magazines might talk about a movie or like one book, maybe like one, they'd be like, here's a Taylor Swift album before Taylor Swift existed. (laughs) You know what I mean? It would be like very pop. Mm -hmm. Everything was the most popular pop culture, but like in many ways, these magazines did kind of live in a pop culturalist bubble even where it was just about makeup, clothes, dating. That was about it. You know, it didn't. Weight loss. Weight loss for sure. Maybe mm-hmm. some recipes that for like, you know, low fat yeah. food because this was the 90s. Everything was low fat. Yeah, totally. But it would never. It was like these magazines didn't encourage you to cultivate interests. You know, yeah, like. No. At all. If I. So it was sort of like as a woman, the magazines you had an option to read where you could read these women's magazines that assumed you had no interior mental space, right? Or you could go read like a music magazine or maybe like The New Yorker or something. But there was nothing that like said, hey, you could be both stylish and creative and like really smart and passionate about things. And so Bust felt really unique in that way. Well, you also didn't see
1: a lot of really cool other women being showcased in, in any of these, these periodicals. No,
0: no. I mean, you didn't know that that existed. You didn't. Oh my God, there's
1: actually cool women everywhere. And I
0: think that's a really good call out too, because now we are accustomed to the few magazines that remain almost Mm -hmm. always having celebrity on the cover, but previously all the women's magazines just had models on the cover. Yes. Sassy being an exception. And I think that set Sassy and then later Jane apart, where they would go with people who were icons to the readers, not models. So it was it just the approach was so different. Uh the first issue of Bust was literally printed on the Office Xerox at Nickelodeon. <laughs> And stapled together one late night at the office. And I get it because, you know, Kinko's was and is expensive. Expensive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hensel said, quote, there used to be a little zine store called See Here on 7th Street, I believe, or 6th Street. So we brought some issues there and the guy was like, this is cool, but you really have to have something more substantial You can't just have a Xerox copy. You need to get a real printed thing. So I researched some printers and found one out in Queens. The second issue is actually printed properly. Two pieces that are folded with a little bit of color. Each issue, we would put money into the next one. We would never make very much money on these. And I, spoiler, Mm -hmm. they still don't. But you can see by the time they get to the third uh, issue, it's starting to look more like a regular magazine, sort of. Bust was so different than the other women's magazines out there, and not just aesthetically. Like they talked frankly about sex in a way that like Jane or Sassy would. There were regular features about craft. You know, I talked about how this yes. was sort of the origin of the Stitch and Bitch movement, the resurgence of knitting in the aughts for hipsters. Um, they focused on indie fashion and DIY projects. For the f- and indie music. And indie music and indie film and indie writers. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was, there was a little bit of fashion. There was a little bit of DIY. There was a lot of culture and thought, personal essays. Once again, these are things that we were not exposed to. Like if you wanted to read about knitting or crafting, you'd have to go buy like Women's Circle or whatever it's called. Yeah, you'd have to go to like
1: Joanne's Fabrics and go, like there's nothing more uninspiring than yes, the crap that was yes. out there. Like, and, but if you've seen these cool people doing this, all this cool stuff in a way that is like unique and innovative, like that is that is enough to completely ch- like start a whole new movement.
0: Absolutely. And I remember reading about knitting in bust and embroidery and being like, I am going to get into these things. And I did, you know, yeah. like bust really helped drive the resurgence of craft for our generation Um, For the first seven years, Bust was just a part-time job for everyone making it, which, I mean, that that had to be a lot of work because I feel like it blew up more and more and more. No one made any money. Any profit just went to making the magazine better, and it was growing and growing in terms of the amount of work required to keep it going. They were sort of at this point where they were like, we don't know what to do. We want to keep it going, but it's like, what's in it for us at this point? And then an amazing opportunity came along in 2000. And something that I forget about a lot because you and I were so young then, we weren't like Mm -hmm. real, you know, we weren't like out in the adult world. 2000, between 2000 and then like 9-11, a year later, we saw a huge tech bubble bust, Mm -hmm. you know, where all of these people who worked in the tech industry, I know we think of like that tech boom coming later, but there was a first one. That was in like 1999, 2000, and then finally was dead over by 2001, where people were like, like, it was like, oh, we're going to do virtual reality and the internet's becoming a big thing (laughs) and video games. and, And, you know, iPhones and iPods didn't exist at this point. And so the technology was pretty weird, but there was this huge boom in it. And then all at once, everything went bankrupt. Everybody lost their jobs. We actually talked about this very slightly with vice, how like they had gotten all this investment. And when this like tech bust happened, they lost all their money and they had to be really scrappy. Well, this is when, right before this happens, bust is approached with, by someone willing to buy the magazine, take over the actual like day-to-day publishing of it, like the boring stuff and allow its staff to quit their day jobs and work on the magazine full-time. Like really just focus on the creative aspect of that. Well, who would turn that down, right? And do you know why
1: they – what they saw in Bust? Did I, they see it as, like, some sort of profitable vehicle or I, I, did they want to, like, support the movement?
0: No, I think they saw it as a profitable vehicle. I mean, I think that's right. basically the same thing that happened with Vice. There was, like, a crazy amount of money going around in 1999 and 2000 that was, like, I mean, and we driven. saw – the 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 pulp all those those magazines like that thing was that was just
1: huge. I'm sure there was a lot of money yeah, investment going in. Yeah, like advertisers were were spending more and more and more. Yeah, I can oh, only imagine.
0: Totally, totally. So it seemed like a good a good situation. I mean, they couldn't predict the future. Well, Debbie Stoller told Forbes, "Quote in 2000, we sold the company to our Sub." a subdivision of Razorfish Studios, so we could give up our jobs and work full-time on Bust. They were going to take care of all the publishing stuff because we kept thinking we didn't know how to do that. We just know how to make the content. So we hired people, got an office. It was great. They put some money into growing the audience with distributors, so that was a big boost. Unfortunately, the next year, Razorfish got into financial trouble and decided that we were going to have to go on a hiatus for a bit, while they looked for investors. Well, it actually got worse after 9-11. Our sub folded, but Hensel and Stoller were able to buy the name back just a few months later for almost no money, Mm -hmm. Kim. Stoller said, quote, we bought the name back for about the price of a fancy computer system, whatever that means. That sounds dated to me too. But along with that came about 30,000 subscribers, Mm -hmm. Who had paid money to receive issues that our sub had, you know, pocketed and lost? So we started out in debt to those subscribers. So basically, oh, wow. they owed magazines to thirty thousand people every month for probably about a year, which meant that they would be printing thirty thousand copies of each issue that wouldn't be paid for, and like any. Other money that was going to come in to run the business had to be beyond those thirty thousand subscribers. So this is this is a scary place to start out, right? And like the internet, the nascent internet and its media was speculating that this was going to be the end of Bust. Like there was no way they could overcome this. So. They sat down with the interns because now no one was being paid. Everybody was working for free and sent out emails to all of the subscribers saying, hey, we need help. And I actually remember getting one of these emails because I was a subscriber at this point. And subscribers started just like sending in donations. The team also had a fundraiser featuring the yeah, yeah, yeahs. That raised $20,000. That was enough to print the next issue, which was amazingly named the Fight Like a Girl issue. Oh, um, I love and that. everyone on the team kind of cites it as like their favorite issue of all time. And after that, they were back on their feet. So at this point, Bust has been around for 28 years. And a lot of the press that came out a few years ago for their 25th anniversary, so like in 2018, really. Everybody was just like, it's amazing that this magazine is still around because the magazine industry sucks and most magazines have gone away. Uh, and, I mean, there's no real secret to how they're doing it except that they're really careful. So they publish bi monthly, which means every other month, with a staff of six full-time and two part-time members. So they are keeping the overhead low, right? Yeah. They that's p- not very many people. to make a whole magazine – They've never taken investment, and they are debt-free, unlike a lot of other magazines out there who are trying Mm -hmm. to parlay, I don't know, like digital sales, I guess. I feel like everybody wants you to subscribe to their digital version now. They rely on subscribers, about 10,000 actual subscribers who receive the issue every month in the mail. They sell an additional 70,000 issues on newsstands. And then they also offer offer a digital subscription. And in total, they reach about 300,000 readers every month. But the team is very scrappy. Like they cited, they're just very resourceful with their money. They cited that they learned how to code on their own rather than pay someone to build their website, which is totally how I approach every problem in my yes, life. So exactly. I find that relatable. Um, and I do remember when the Bust website really got going in the aughts, Specifically, one of my favorite things about their website that was very unique to the internet at that point, we didn't have Yelp and Google Maps reviews and whatnot like we do now, they had a crowdsourced city guide to shopping, bars, clubs, you name oh, it. that's so cool. So cool. All the info was submitted by readers, and I would use it every time I went somewhere new. It was like the ultimate travel guide, really. So you don't have to, like, go to Yelp and type in the word hipster to yeah, find something exactly. that maybe... <laughs> go figure is okay (laughs) go figure that there was like one thing that technologically Mm -hmm. was superior then to now yeah and i would contribute to it too like if i went somewhere and saw something cool i'd write about it or i would always post things that were in portland and it was really really cool and there needs to be more of that honestly Mm -hmm. the bus team is small like i said um They have a web editor, a freelance ad salesperson, an editor on the West Coast, and rotating interns. They also – this is super smart, and I don't think a lot of other magazines could pull this off. They diversified their revenue streams by holding regular craftaculars, I want to say, three times a year. Obviously, this is Mm. pre-COVID. Basically, it's just a big craft fair for, like, artisans and whatnot. And, you know, that really aligns with their brand values because, once again – Craft, you know, creativity, DIY has always been a big part of their DIY. And their supporting DNA. other women, absolutely. Totally, totally. So, by being scrappy and working very hard, Bust has survived a very changing media landscape that killed off some of its, you know, peers like Venus. Uh, Bitch and Hit Mama are still around. They don't publish very often. Jane is gone, like we said. Mm-hmm. We've seen Jezebel change formats about a million times, but we've also seen feminism become a marketing story, as mm-hmm. we know. We've seen Cosmo turn quote feminist, whatever that means. Oh, God. Uh, Teen Vogue includes award winning political content. Barack Obama wrote a feminist feature for glamour. But we are uh, really, yeah, yeah. So, feminism, I mean, I still think that like. It has been commodified quite a bit, it as has. you know. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that you know, retailers and magazines and blogs look at someone like Bust and they're like, there's value there. Maybe they don't think about Bust now that often, but they definitely 10, 15 years ago did. For sure, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also seen real, actual paper magazines become thinner, more ad-focused, and less appealing. Same thing for all the blogs, right? So it says something that Bust is still going, functioning, really functioning as a membership card for a community of mm-hmm. crafty feminists with an eye for indie designers. Like, it's a badge to have it, you know?
1: I I remember, you know, I mean, I would obviously read it in the, the aughts often, and I remember the ads in there were also for indie designers. Mm-hmm. It was always like... An, an, a knitted scarf from this person or, you know, it was, it was actually a really cool way to be able to market your own DIY um, crafting project oh, to the, to the bright community.
0: For sure. I mean, I remember seeing queen bee creations, which I talked about in the last episode yes. in just about every issue, yes. the sublime stitching. I found mm-hmm. out about them through bust. I mean, they, they really lifted up a lot of these indie brands. I, I, might be remembering this wrong, but I feel like they had in a lot of their like editorial, there would be a lot of built by Wendy as well. Yeah, uh, it just there was it was just like part. It made sense, you know. And no, it's funny because no one has really done anything like that since then. If anything, the relationship with like the mainstream media, if you will, and indie like small businesses, designers, crafters has become even more nebulous rather than like really bringing them fully on board because Mm -hmm. we talked about this, I think maybe in the last episode, a lot of the like fashion style lifestyle blogs are so affiliate driven that they, they don't have, they don't have time to mess around with someone who's not going to drive in some sales revenue for them, you know? Exactly. Um, I just also wanted to add that zines continue to flourish even now in a mostly digital world. In fact, I think over the last few years, we've seen people slowly return to the art form, to the appreciation of these analog items, you know, like records, for example. Um, There are many, many people who actually prefer to, you know, create art on paper, even now. And even I back in LA published a zine called Sandy. And uh, it was really popular. People were into it. It seemed I I, for every one person I met who's like, why would you just do something on paper and not on the internet? There were like 20 people who were (laughs) super stoked on it. Um, The IPRC in Portland is still going strong and artists all over the world continue to use this inexpensive form of self-publishing to share their writing comics and ideas do you think that there is a clothes horse zine down the road (laughs) i mean the thing about publishing on paper is it's expensive you know and i think that's why we don't see a lot of magazines new magazines popping up right because it's expensive whereas you can go buy Squarespace domain for like $150, you know, and uh, reach more people and not have to deal with like the USPS and all of that stuff, too. So probably not. But who knows? I mean, maybe someday we'll have an event where there'll be all the people will be in person and we can hand out something. Exactly.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, nylon is another big kind of game changer in the publication world, right around that kind of um, magazine bubble time. Um, they targeted a slightly older demographic as one of the first alternative women's fashion magazines. Um, and it was positioned, of course, in the American audience specific to a real outsider, an alternative group of women. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was glossier, you know, it, as opposed to some of the fashion magazines out there, it didn't talk about boys and dating and losing weight. And it it was all
0: about being cool, yeah, you know? Yeah, it was. It was. It wasn't – it didn't have the personal feel that, like, Jane and Sassy did, where those, like, magazines right. felt like you were sitting down and, like, getting to know someone. It didn't have that, like, emotional intimacy. Like, I don't know if I can remember the names of anyone who worked on that magazine, but – It was so different because remember Jane's gone at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. And Jane from a fashion perspective was kind of like wah wah. Right. It was, it was more about the other content, but nylon, it looked so different. The clothes were so cool. The makeup was so cool. It was all about like going out. Yeah. The music content was great. They talked about a movie. You knew it was cool. Same thing with books. It was, it was cool. It was yeah. It was cool. It, clearly,
1: the people that made it were cool. Yeah, and yeah. They were they were in the know, but not in the know in a mainstream way. In like an underground alternative totally, way. Totally, totally. So Nylon was founded in 1999 uh, by Cool Magazine publishing mogul Marvin Scott Jarrett who had come from the industry, you know, a long industry background of uh, magazines, and had launched a few pre-Maxim men's magazines. Uh, There was one called Ray Gun.
0: I remember that Uh, one one.
1: You do. I yes. don't remember this one at all.
0: Yeah, um, but I'm sure you saw it at your magazine shop. That's what I was going to say I totally bought it there. I can <laughs> picture the cover. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting that that was for men. It, it makes sense now. But like, like I was saying before, a lot of the magazines in the '90s that were women focused were just so lame that if you wanted yeah. to read about music or books or movies, I guess you had to read a men's magazine. Like, do you, you did? Do you remember details? Yes. I thought Details was very cool in the 90s. That's another one mm-hmm. that got bought and turned into like garbage, but it, they had really interesting pop culture content.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Um I, I think, you know, I think Reagan um I think it was they were definitely one of the first men's magazines that actually was music and culture and cool mm-hmm. as opposed to like that like kind of you know, bro-, bro culture thing. Yeah, gross. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> and so Marvin Scott Jarrett had, clearly had, is sort of like very innovative in the space. He's really design forward and really plugged in on the trends. And there was a lot of articles going around about how when he was going to launch this new magazine, whether it would be legible, because he approached the design or, you know, the creative director approached the design really design heavy. Yeah. So it wasn't always... As easy to consume. I do remember
0: Reagan having a very different look, and some of the articles yes. were hard to read. <laughs> <laughs> he, but he he definitely took that to
1: heart. So obviously, you know, when he was going to bring on this new magazine, which he called Nylon, and is in a totally different space and is for women, and it's yeah. it's a women's magazine. He brought those same sensibilities, and he wanted to apply it to this new magazine. But filling a white space in the cool, hip female void, and what he did was he leveraged—and you kind of mentioned this—but he leveraged that idea of the it girl, not the model, but like it girls that you know pe- that the consumer you know gravitated towards and felt like a kinship with. Um, They—it was indie artists. Edgy trends, you know, nylon just stood out. You know, they focused on it girl celebrities that had independent in hipster style, as a op- as opposed to you know the more the more mass or like like you said, just the models. Yeah, yeah, um, and that really appealed to the audience, of course. Um, so Scott partnered with the infamous model Elena Christensen, no relation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: interesting
1: <laughs> well you know same last name um was the co-founder and creative director um and I read a couple articles about the partnership and it just seems like she was kind of a bit of a name to attach you know mm-hmm. just a little a little flair she didn't really do a lot of heavy lifting um she kind of did just did some correspondence work. I'm not exactly sure. I don't want to downgrade what she did, but there were some funny articles about her. She just kind of would flirt in and out. Um other partners included Scott's wife Jacqueline Jarrett as well as a few other people that came over from Raygun because he sold Raygun and started on this new venture. Uh you know, and an interesting person on the roster was and I'm going to totally butcher this name. You might know it. Lena Kutsgvaskya. <laughs> <laughs>
0: i mean i I remember seeing Uh, the name in the magazine but like the last thing you ever want me to do is try to pronounce someone's last name i can make it worse
1: painful (laughs) i'm so sorry lena Uh, but she was nylon's art director from 1999 to 2002 and then she moved on to teen vogue and a fun fact amanda she Mm -hmm. was at nasty gal for just over one year Huh.
0: 2013 to
1: 2014. Wow. We must have just here uh Yes, it seemed, yeah, it's. I, I'm guessing, I mean, she was definitely the go-to for a really cool edgy style. And she really defined Nylon's um, aesthetic that ultimately appealed visually to the demographic in such a perfect and really innovative way that we didn't really see in magazines before then. So the mission statement back in 1999 reads... Nylon will appeal to independent thinkers who can handle radical ideas. I mean, if you think about it today and you look at look at the um the content today, of course, it's been sold, it's definitely not like that, but they did approach the market with this kind of um aspirational um mission that really didn't exist mm-hmm. so in two thousands, the nylon website described the publication as the most hot magazine.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it. I love this magazine from moment one. So maybe it was the most hot magazine. The most- <laughs> I mean, like, I... I feel like Nylon is the last magazine I got excited to see in my mailbox. It was. You know? It was
1: the last magazine yeah. I got
0: excited. Yeah.
1: Um, it was devoted to, and, they, and I quote, life's passionate participants, not its faint hearted <laughs> spectators. <laughs> oh,
0: my God. This is like <laughs> such party lingo. <laughs> it is.
1: Yes. But, you know, it was aligned towards young women between the ages of 18 and 35, mostly single, college educated and employed, but most importantly, not in the mainstream, Um, Mm -hmm. But, of course, like most of us good hipsters, loved consuming. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, right before the launch, Jarrett had listed polo jeans, Guess, Union Bay, Burberry, Bacardi, and various cigarette brands amongst the advertisers committed to his first issue. Weird. Okay, first off. Isn't that weird?
0: I haven't heard anyone say Union Bay. (laughs) Like, do they still exist? It's like I, I hope not. Um, I also, don't know. I forgot about cigarettes. <laughs> yes, yes. Isn't that really? Oh interesting? my goodness! I mean,
1: it's, which is you know obviously it's eighteen plus, so that yeah. makes sense. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't see a <laughs> cigarette brand likely in a Nylon <laughs> magazine. Um, but it's also really weird for the demographic that they're going for because they're just like, oh, this is for, like, the coolest of the cool people. But here's Polo Jeans Guess in Union Bay. <laughs>
0: Fuck. <laughs> you know? It makes no sense yeah. to me. Like,
1: But it it speaks to how much more commercial this mm-hmm. magazine was than Bust. Oh,
0: yeah, for sure. I mean, like, Bus would have never had a cigarette ad. And I do remember mm-hmm. Nylon having – almost every issue for a while American spirit ads remember those
1: I mean they still yeah. exist I'm mean, I yes, like American yes. spirit
0: cigarettes went away but uh like that was like if you read nylon the only cigarette that was acceptable to smoke was American spirit that's true
1: yeah. apparently th- they were looking to publish I think it was like 300,000 issues wow. for their first, which is likely why Jarrett did get into this in the first place. I'm guessing that, they, that he was just looking for something bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, men's, men's likely has a, a lower distribution and just seeing this this niche market, you know, this is where mm-hmm. the money's at. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and 300000 is a pretty good distribution compared to what Bust was doing. What was Bust doing again?
0: 30000
1: Thirty thousand, so yeah, that's ten times yeah. more. Yeah. Um, anyway, I remember finding it early and immediately subscribing, um, and it was everything you didn't know you needed. It was a really good mix of super expensive, aspirational products and really totally. I mean, products.
0: this was the era, and I'm like, I'm sure this is when you were at Oak. It, it operated the same way, where it was like the high-low idea. So you yes. might wear a $20 dress with like $400 shoes, you know, like that kind of idea. I mean, we were definitely pushing that at urban outfitters to the best of our ability.
1: Yes. And, and nylon was doing it right from the beginning. Um, You know, originally it was very fashion centric Scott saying, and I quote, I'll be doing 40 pages of fashion and 10 to 15 pages of beauty in every issue, which is pretty vague, but culture and lifestyle and music became such a bigger heart and he probably didn't even realize mm-hmm. you know I think it kind of just grew out of the what the consumer likes you know art beauty music design celebrities technology travel but not for the mainstream even though they did have some mainstream people they would vet mm-hmm. it differently mm-hmm. you know and nylon originally stood for New York London You know, and they were going to talk about just
0: those two cities. You know, I will say that I do remember the early days. There was so much coverage of British music and fashion trends that I think it shifted over time. But I definitely, I mean, I I also, and you know, maybe this was coming because I was reading Nylon and considering it like the coolest style magazine out there at that time. But London was having a moment, you know, that it hadn't had in quite a while where like, this was like the era of Henry Holland mm-hmm. and, you know, Agnesine being like the hottest model. And Henry Holland was like the coolest designer. But I wonder if I was just getting that from mm-hmm. nylon. <laughs> yeah, we we're getting it. Yeah. You're we definitely <laughs> being fed it from nylon. Where else are we yeah, getting it? 100%. There was nothing else, nothing else to look at. I know. I know. But we would be at work and like, Okay, well, we gotta like. Can we get can we get Henry Holland here at Urban Outfitters? And the answer was no. But okay, well, then what can we make that yeah. is similar? You know, definitely was that era. I mean, even I think about like um, Lily mm-hmm. Allen. Lily Allen was like a style icon for like six months there, and I am almost certain she was on the cover I mean, of it was Nylon.
1: A, uh, Peaches G- Geldof and all the yes. eight girls. Oh my and, god! Um, I- Amy Winehouse and
0: mm-hmm yeah, both of them are R. Uh, P. yes yeah i know super super sad mm-hmm. we definitely we, i remember us doing a like a trend project at work where we talked it was like all about peaches yeah. off like she was like the girl and i it's funny uh Last year, I was in the car with Dustin, and he was talking about her dad, who he was like really yes. famous music producer, musician. And I was like, "Oh, do you remember his daughter, Peaches?" And Dustin had no idea what I was talking about. And that was when I googled her and found out that she had oh, passed you didn't away. Know that she pa- oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know how I missed that, but yes. so sad. And she was like the it girl. Thanks to exactly. Nylon. And
1: I did paste in a couple. Um, a couple of the earlier issues so you could see them and like Lizzie Jagger was really big. Do you remember this? I remember this. I remember this art. artist. Yeah. This, I, I used to look at this magazine over and over and yeah. over again.
0: I remember yes. all of these covers. I pulled, so I pulled them because
1: I, I I wow. read them so many times. And it was mm-hmm. all international international mm-hmm. um, It Girls. It wasn't just American It Girls. Mm-hmm. And actually, American It Girls were kind of we didn't really have a lot of really cool American air curls at this time.
0: No, we didn't. Yeah, we get to put like Paris Hilton on the yeah. cover. I remember they had, and this might have been closer to maybe two thousand six, two thousand seven. They brought Corey Kennedy on board and she oh had God. a column every month and she was like yes. seventeen, you know. Um, that was the Cobrascapes, the Cobra Snake's yes. girlfriend for anyone who didn't recognize that name. Um, but that was like the only American that mm-hmm. they were really featuring in there. but regularly. It was, you know
1: the, the, the people that sold the, ma- the 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 magazine and the issues were people that were doing really cool things. They were just really amazing mm-hmm, women that mm-hmm. were doing cool stuff, you know, and they would talk about how co- all the great stuff that they were doing, you know. Um, you know, I guess the first issue actually featured Liv Tyler. And they talked about – I actually have posted on here. They have Sophia Coppola, Shirley Manson, Lily Sobieski. Um, mm-hmm. so there's definitely some American – there was definitely some American girls too. But as they kind of got into later mm-hmm. issues, they started sourcing a lot of international cool girls. And then mm-hmm. um, Nylon Guys came out in 2003, which
0: didn't I follow the that.
1: typical beers and babes model.
0: <laughs> no, and that was what yeah. men's like the lad oh. mags, like that was the mm-hmm. era of the lad mags, like what was the one like FHM or FLM, something like that. And then of course there was Maxim, which yes, was like the Maxim. big guy mm-hmm. of it all. And like men's magazines specifically at that period were like in a really disgusting yes. place. I mean, like I guess most if you were
1: like a cool guy, you probably read what like a music magazine, oh the Fader probably or something, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, you weren't, you weren't reading Maxim. I hope I, that would be a red flag for me if I went to someone's Absolutely. Huge red flag. (laughs) Actually, I mean, definitely whatever magazine a guy subscribes to,
1: and this is actually one of the things that I was thinking about with nylon guys, you know, this was technically kind of made for the boyfriend of the Nylon girl. You know, the original launch was included in regular nylon subscriptions. Uh, I remember actually getting one Mm -hmm. and just being like, huh. And for some whatever reason, I never really understood who the guy was. Like I understood the female consumer for nylon, but the guy consumer was harder for me to wrap my head around. And I couldn't imagine yeah. any cool guy I knew ever reading it. And actually thinking, if I saw a guy had like had this at their house, I would probably think they weren't that cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it was like you're trying too weird. hard. I mean. I, you know, I remember when Sassy tried to do this in the nineties with mm-hmm. dirt and like there was maybe three issues and it just, it just didn't work,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, like the counterpart of the nylon woman doesn't want to read nylon men and the same thing for Sassy. It just, it, it's, it's not the easy transfer that they it's think not. it's going to be. It doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> no, really work,
1: no. but I mean, it's. That nylon uh, men's was around into the um, the Audis. It was definitely around for a while.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and once again, I didn't know anyone who read it. I would buy it for work. Yeah, but like you know, it was weird. It was
1: it was weird. I felt you know any of the hip hip guys just didn't even read magazines.
0: You know, I don't know what they well, did. And by like 2010, as we roll into the oddies, maybe even a couple years before that, we start to see that like Portland aesthetic for men that is like the, I remember people would call it lumber sexual. Yes. I hate that term, but, but where it was kind of like the ye olds meet the outdoorsy and they have a baby and this is like what, how dudes dress, you know? Yeah. And that's not what Nylon Men was doing. So it didn't, it just wasn't even on the right trend, I guess.
1: Maybe it was like for younger guys.
0: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, if you read that magazine, please, please let us know why and (laughs) what you thought of it, you know.
1: So also in 2003, Nylon launched their digital NylonMag.com, which surpassed the printed readership that year. And their strategy switched to digital first right away. Um, mm-hmm. They also I had on TV in collaboration with YouTube, and they really did focus on these new technologies and platforms as leaders in the trends. And you know, Amanda, we kind of talked about this. They also had a really bad like e-commerce situation.
0: <laughs> it was really, really, it was bad. really bad. I um, so I definitely remember. Even I mean, the, it hung on for a while, and I remember at one of my jobs, them reaching out to us about wholesaling on their site. And it, it wasn't a good fit. And I was also like, I do not even know this was still around. Like, why would we take this gamble? But I mean, they definitely, earlier than a lot of other magazines realized that there was an ability to like directly sell people stuff online through their like content. But I, you know, what eventually happened for all of the other like major fashion blogs, like Refinery29, Bustle, you know, Hello Giggles, all that stuff, is that they realized the real power was in affiliate marketing. Yes. So you coming to the site, clicking the link for the thing that they're showing you and that taking you to the retailer. And then taking the a percentage of that sale. Exactly. Exactly. But, but rather than do that, Nylon was trying to just sell it directly to you. And it just seemed like it was a mess. I
1: mean, that is a mess. It's a, it's so much more work than anyone ever imagines. It's almost like <laughs> it, it reminds me of, of, you know, any, all these, you know, these digital uh, DTC companies that are like, I want to have a store. And they don't realize Uh, how much work a store is. I know. And and it's not just something you can easily get into, you know?
0: No, no. And I mean, I still think, well, maybe finally the pandemic has killed this, but coming from the startup world for like the past few jobs I've had, the push has always been, Okay, well, that's great, but when are you opening a exactly. store and how many? And I wonder if now, finally, investors are realizing how stupid that is.
1: I don't know. <laughs> I have a feeling that it'll be like, oh, everyone's going to want to get out and they're going to want to have that experience. It's just like, oh, God.
0: No, stars. I don't even know. I feel like I can't even imagine a world in which I'm like allowing people to get within six feet of me. That's true. <laughs> it's
1: just, you know. So, you know, nylon started to get infusions of the mainstream. I do remember this kind of and like started losing its authenticity a bit in the yeah. later yeah. and then definitely into the, the Um, Just really obviously relying more on the advertising dollar, you know, and that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. When did you stop following nylon?
0: Oh man, I feel like it was early oddies because I, so I specifically remember in the aughts until like at least 2010 at Urban Outfitters, we wanted so badly to be in nylon. Yeah. Our like PR person was sending them samples every month, begging, pleading, trying to work out deals. She had even come from nylon, okay? And oh. they were just like, it's too mass, sorry, you know, like we're, we're, we don't want to be. We don't want to have stuff that you can buy at the mall in here. But then suddenly, it was like 2011, 2012. You started to see some weird stuff rolling into nylon, mm-hmm. and that was when, like, I remember they they one time were showing a pair of kids, for example, and I was like, oh, like things are red things flag. Are getting weird here, yeah. And and it would make me laugh because I'd be like, all those years. You wouldn't show Urban Outfitters, and now you've got Keds in here, or like other H and M, like the fast fashion started creeping in there. Hard on H and M specifically, like you wouldn't really see that much Forever Twenty One in there, or like Wet Seal or Charlotte Russe or anything, but so much H and M, so much Zara. It it must have been advertisers. They must have been. And well, I was, before we started recording, I was like, let's look at Nylon's website and see what they're doing. And like multiple segments about H&M. <laughs> like, I was like, Oh, yeah. like still,
1: yeah. still big advertisers and sponsors. Yeah. Yeah. God. Which uh, probably like- also helped fuel the, 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 um,
0: the fast fashion fire. Oh, for sure. Because I remember starting to see that stuff and, you know, for someone who was like, oh, I always thought H&M wasn't cool or, like, it was low quality, it started to normalize the idea that maybe it was cool, you know, that maybe it was okay to go shopping at H&M and buy a whole outfit for $80, yes. you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I get it. When we think about 2010, 2011, that era, this is when... If to avoid fast fashion, to ignore it as a magazine, as a blog is basically like shooting yourself in the foot. Like you're never, you're never going to succeed without getting on board with it. Like I get that, but uh, it was still, it's not like Vogue started showing H&M, you know? And I guess I just thought that H, that nylon was in a different category than like Cosmo, you know what I mean? And it it wasn't. It, you know yeah, exactly
1: so the scots actually moved on from the magazine after selling it in 2014 and of course have gone on to continue excelling at other innovative media you know they launched an online concept recently called popular the anti-social network have you seen that
0: no just, the name crazy. is really up
1: my alley um and it's aimed at female millennials to promote individualism so they I think, you know, I think things have changed. They've been pivoting around. It was really originally to feature brand investors, celebrities, and other user-generated videos from all walks of life. I think it's popular.tv. So they were really going mm-hmm. for a video-forward um, content, uh, but the, the 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 website is mostly just stills. Um,
0: and it Well, really- looking at their Instagram, and they don't post very very often. Yeah. I don't
1: think it's a huge thing. Um they don't – it doesn't look like they've got tons of big sponsors or anything. It really seems to just, just showcase women really talking about who they are as individuals. Um, mm-hmm. I did find out that uh, 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 Marvin Scott Jarrett did publish a new men's magazine called Marvin this year. Basically just went into a passion project and started started um, making an, another men's magazine. So, um, you know mm. – I think we'll constantly be seeing really cool things that they're doing. In the mid-aughts, we really started to see a disastrous shift away from the printed glossy mags, and the internet revolution was taking hold with the new media trending. You know, new media was competing in two areas essential to magazines. We kind of talked about this, consumer time and advertising revenues, Mm -hmm. With advertising shifting their dollars to online, the ability to track ROI and the advent of targeted social media advertising, there's just less and less for magazines. Mm -hmm. And then as as more and more people were going online and the time spent on social media, there's just less time to read your beloved magazines, which, of course, Mm -hmm. we've all experienced with my ill-fated accidental hoarding situation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Consumer demand for easy accesses and niche interests made new media and the rise of e-com replace the demand for magazines. Uh, Subcultures also saw an interesting effect. Sleek Magazine has a really poignant take on subculture in the era of the Internet in reference to an article by Catherine O'Regan about the reboot of The Face Magazine in 2019. Mm. And the articles called, Do We Really Need a Reboot of Cult 90s Mag, The Face, to Make Us Feel Cool Again? Arguing mm. that the rules and consumption of subculture has changed so drastically that it means something so much different than it used to. Saying, and I quote, Of course, in the age of social media, subculture means something entirely different than it did when people actually cared who made it to number one on top of the pops or what someone like Morrissey had to say. In the pre-internet era, subcultures grew slowly over time and proliferated in urban centers. Hinged on music tastes and fashion choices, subculture was organic and deep-rooted. To be a part of one was akin to being a card-carrying member of some religious cult. These days, subcultures come and go. They spread quickly without any real impact and most likely live and find validity in small and mysterious pockets on the net. We've lost a lot of amazing digital fixtures, but if you think you are in need of some teen content, there's an Instagram that will take you back. Uh it's called at Thank You t- Tusa. Um it's an Instagram devoted to the sharing of teen mag articles from the 90s and aughts. Uh the Instagram is dedicated to Atusa, sorry, I guess it's Thank You Atusa. Because it's it's the Instagram mm-hmm. dedicated to Atusa Rubenstein the founding editor at Cosmo Girl and former editor-in-chief of Seventeen. And basically, it just pulls... Wow. The, the, Gosh, I
0: forgot about Cosmo Girl, too. I do too. R.I.P. <laughs> so,
1: it's a, the, the curator of this Instagram account basically went home and saw that, like, her parents had kept all of her old teen magazines, and she just takes snapshots, and then people send in user-generated old magazines. It's really, really funny, and you can kind of, you know, follow and, and catch up on on old 90s teen content.
0: <laughs> Get all your horror stories about maxi pads in a swimming pool. Just take care of all exactly. them. Exactly. All, the shop. all of it. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting because I just, it's hard for me to see a time when fashion magazines become important again because, you know, we've actually seen a shift. Like we saw like brands and retailers shift from, trying their hardest to get into magazines and sending samples and buying ads and all of that stuff to, okay, now we're really, we really need to focus on trying to get placement on refinery or something, Mm -hmm. right? And then that era has ended and everybody's budget now is going to influencers. And I think we're turning a corner there too, because just, I think we're starting to see a lot of the major influencers sort of like self-combust. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think people are just sick of it, you know, they want to see something like you've talked about the micro influencers before. They want to see something sincere. They want to have a real connection with the people who inspire them, you know?
1: I mean, nano influencers is now even bigger than micro influencers. Wow! What's a nano influencer? I mean, nano influencer, influencers I think I think like less than like how oh, I'm I'm gonna say it wrong, but maybe it's like less. It's like a thousand people, you know. It's like very small, very niche, mm-hmm. but obviously much more authentic because this is you know I was reading an article I believe about parade um, underwear you know, that, that oh, brand? Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And yeah. they
1: basically leveraged nano-influencers and micro-influencers and nano-influencers to really kind of build their brand. Um, you know, instead of paying a bunch of, you know, big influencers a bunch of money, they basically just started sending underwear to all these just really, just, just girls, like actual people, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe they mm-hmm. have a slightly large, like a thousand people is not a big following, you know? No, um, no. But those people that are following likely have a personal connection to the person. Yeah. So they were able to see that they could build this community really quickly based on their nano influencers.
0: I mean, it makes sense to me because I'd rather see what, you know, one of my friends is into than some rando with like 2 million followers. Yes. And we all realize now, I think, I hope that influencers get paid to wear and show us stuff and so it doesn't seem it's not like a real like yeah. positive review it's just like here's some more stuff you could buy and we're starting to see through that right like we want we want a real like word of mouth like glowing you know support of something in order to buy it we now that we know that people just wear stuff to get paid to be seen wearing it right yeah. um and i also just think if you have a cool brand, if you have like a, a specific aesthetic or a set of values for your brand, do you really want to be seen on the same influencer that the next day is doing some sort of like Amazon affiliate thing <laughs> or Nordstrom anniversary sale? You don't, no. right? Or selling some diet tea or something like that's bad for your brand. Yeah.
1: And it usually just seems exceptionally inauthentic. Like you're saying the diet tea, or, you know,
0: they were all very,
1: like something that, that, that the audience can't even afford.
0: Yeah. It just doesn't mean anything. Like I could see how parade underwear does really well because it's affordable. And like people are saying, like, hey, I wore these underwear and they're actually like really comfortable. They're actually comfortable. And well, they're not even being
1: really—they're not being paid. They're just being, you know, they're like, "We'll, we'll send you these pannings if you post it online." Essentially, and yeah. it's not a paid. You just—you just get some product.
0: Right, right. It just seems more, more sincere. Mm-hmm. Also, like having been on the other side of like trying to get influencers to wear stuff at different brands I've worked for, the amount of money you have to pay oh them God. is wild, wild. It's, it- it, it like is. is almost infuriating, you know. It is. And you know they're even, not doing work, you know, but it's like whoa. You can't even track the return necessarily either. No, you can't. And uh, you know, like now that I've watched that documentary, I know that they're buying all these followers. So Yes. Uh exactly. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and the likes, <laughs> I have no idea. What oh my gosh! It, was. it changes everything for me because I now am like very skeptical. And I was talking to another friend who works in the marketing area for like various companies, and she was like, "Oh yeah, it's like a well-known fact that like any medium-sized brand or larger is buying." likes and followers like it's like almost a joke to us you know but like if you don't do it then people like investors or whatever would assume that your business isn't good because you can't afford to do it Mm -hmm. not that they would assume that you have less followers because your brand's not good no they just think you're not making enough to buy followers (laughs) isn't that wild yes oh absolutely oh so oh it's (sighs) it's such
1: a it's such a frustrating part of the industry. Um, it is. I'm so curious where it's going to go now.
0: I know. I know. I just, it's just like so hard for me to say. I will not be surprised by anything that happens. Yeah. I can't. I don't.
1: I don't know. I have no idea what's going to change. I mean, you've tried Clubhouse. It's like, okay, Instagram. That's not really. Going anywhere, but people are kind of moving around to different things. TikTok obviously is a huge video element.
0: Um, yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens because, you know, in TikTok, like brands aren't really welcome at this point. And so primarily you just see people posting their own content. Um, I don't know if you saw, I mean, I know Diet Prada talked about this last week, but Danielle Bernstein decided to move on to TikTok, and she's basically been, like, driven out of town. People are like, get out of here. You steal ideas. <gasps> yes, I did You're see a that. you uh, She now is still there but has disabled all commenting, and that's just not going to fly at TikTok. Like, TikTok currently, as it stands, has probably the most authenticity of any social media platform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whereas, like, Instagram, it reminds me of early Instagram before Facebook bought it where you really had to create in order to participate and it wasn't about selling things. It was really about just like people interacting with one another and communicating. Whereas like Instagram has become a shopping mall, you know, Yeah. I don't know what happened on Instagram, but suddenly I was in some shopping part of it and I couldn't get out of it. And I like panicked (laughs) and had to like close the whole app. And I, you know, we're going to see more and more of that on Instagram because you might not remember this because Facebook is so uncool and unuseful now. Five years ago, that's what Facebook was. And I remember being at jobs where it was like, we have no choice but to give Facebook any amount of money they're asking for or we'll never sell anything ever again. And then Facebook fell out of favor. And so Now they're like, okay, we need to turn Instagram into the same machine. That Instagram needs to drive the volume for us now. And we're seeing that happen. You know, if you don't pay to participate on Instagram, no one's going to see your posts. Isn't that – it makes me so angry. I mean, I also am like, yeah, okay, I didn't think, like, Instagram was, like, a volunteer organization either, you know, but (laughs) – A nonprofit. Right, right. And I'm sure we're going to see the same thing happen at TikTok, but TikTok right now is in that golden era where you don't see like Target on there making videos (laughs) to sell you stuff or, you know, any of the other big brands. So it still feels authentic. I don't know what will be next after that. Cause it's not clubhouse. Let me tell you clubhouse already feels really corporate. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So will you be joining clubhouse anytime soon again?
0: Uh, I mean, I've tried a few times and people want to do different things there. And if you're there with your friends, it's cool. You're just like talking or whatever. But man. It's really intimidating. There's a lot of like misinformation. Oh my God. I know. And there's just like excruciating self-promotion. Yes. Take all the pictures out of Instagram and you're only left with captions being read aloud by someone. And that is Clubhouse right now where I just – there are people who are angling so hard to be – Clubhouse influencers that they are on there eight, 10, 12 hours a day. It's brutal. And like, don't join any conversations about sustainability because they're all garbage.
1: <laughs> oh my God. I know. Well, I think we were talking about this, or sort of, like Neil was saying, it's like, he's like, it's just the same people in this, in all these rooms. Like every time you go on,
0: there's the same oh, person. Day, every day. Yes. It's just the there same th- voices. <laughs> My friend, did, Some friends of mine invited me to, like, a vintage and secondhand room. And I was like, oh, I want to go check that out. I want to hear yeah, what people are cool. saying. And I followed a bunch of people who were in that room. And now I realize, because it sends me, like, a push notification every time one of them is on. And they're all on all day, every day. And I just am like, guys, go listen to NPR or something. Wow, right? Listen to a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I keep trying. But, like, it's just...
1: It's just, like, so... We gotta listen to gross. a bunch of dummies or a bunch of self-promoters, you know? Like, you can't get yeah. away from it.
0: You can't get away from it. It's really interesting. And so, first off, how does Clubhouse make money down the road? Would we have to listen to ads? Probably. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know what the next step is there. But the interface is not that great, Um like I said, the content is really annoying. Yeah.
1: <laughs> just anyone can say anything. I mean, it's basically like a Reddit, but it's talking Reddit.
0: I know. Exactly. I can't just scroll through no, it please. and move on to Listen. the next one. Yeah. And already, I mean, how long has Clubhouse even been around? I have so many invites. No one is interested. <laughs> <laughs> I know, no everybody's like no i heard it sucks and i'm like okay <laughs>
1: i know i was trying to give i was trying to give away some invites too
0: yeah, <laughs> I, to get yeah. What you do. I know yeah I, like, mean, I'm I, trying know. To, I mean i don't know i mean like we've talked about trying to organize other things on there and maybe it will happen but it was just like so much work mm-hmm. and like Man, you never know who's going to show up in your room and derail it. Like Literally. I told you about that woman who just seems to be on there 24 hours a day, <laughs> trolling around trying to give people advice about their business. And we were just like, oh, my God. Oh. The one who has the line of small dogs, specifically yes. small dog pet carriers. She's <laughs> trying to, try to dole on advice. So anyway, so yeah, I would love to hear what all of you think of Clubhouse because mm-hmm. I just, it's not it for me. And I mean, this is something that I think about constantly. I've had so many conversations about right now. It seems for most of us, like our community is centered on Instagram and cause like we've all accepted that like Facebook kind of sucks. Right. And we thought maybe Clubhouse would be that. It's not. Twitter is like just people yelling all day yeah. it, like, there's no Complaining. like yeah. yeah there's no real like communication there so it's like we need a new platform but i don't know what that is because it's not tiktok either you know like making a video is actually a lot of work it's of, <laughs> exactly it's like we, we already talked about how little
1: time we have
0: yeah yeah so i mean instagram was just the right amount of work and so it's like someone needs to start a new instagram i guess <laughs> yeah like a new concept like same thing as Instagram, basically, but like without all the lame stuff.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Just, just,
1: just. Why don't you just just copy it and take out the lame stuff?
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, don't mess with the interface because I'm really used to it now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, just everything's the no. same. <laughs>
1: just take out the, all the lame stuff.
0: Take out all the lame stuff, like the trying to sell me stuff, the weird. Mm-hmm. Remember when you and I were briefly going through a phase where we would tag each other on in ads on Instagram <laughs> with a comment <laughs> and that would like delight us you know, take us, take all that out. Uh, take out like Danielle Bernstein, you know, and all the lame influencers and, uh, you know, whatever out people being mean, no totally more. Totally authentic, totally authentic. I don't want to see any more like perfectly curated photos of someone's minimalist house. I just want to see like real life. Like it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. So just start that. I'm sure it's like real easy. You know, just do that. Let me know. I'll sign we'll up. Join, we'll complain. We'll complain. We'll I'll be like, this is the no clubhouse. House. I'm not <laughs> <this> clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that means we've run out of things to talk about tonight. Totally. So, thank you so much. Please call, tell us what you think of Clubhouse, tell us about your favorite magazine memories. I know for a fact that we missed a ton of magazines, but we just oh, yeah. didn't have that much time. So, call and tell us about your favorite magazines that you miss of that era. I and mean, even as I was working on this, Dustin was like telling me magazines at the same time and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about that. Go away." Like, we only we only have so
1: much time. I yeah. know yeah sorry if I missed it
0: um yeah so call and tell us about your favorite magazines or if you still get them or ones you miss how how
1: you're consuming and finding new trends obviously besides us
0: yeah please let us know we want to hear or you know continue to call and tell us your favorite hipster memories exactly (laughs) all right well until next week bye bye